Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 17th of September 2018 and this is episode 81. On today's programme, I talk to former British Army officer and author John Powell about his recent biography of General Sir Edward Bulfin, an Irish Catholic general officer in the British Army during the Great War. This has been published by Pen and Sword. I spoke to John via the marvels of technology from his home in Surrey. John, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk today about your biography of General Sir Edward Bulfin. But before we get into the detail, could you start the interview by giving us some background on yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Certainly. I was a career army officer in the Greenhouse uh, Yorkshire Infantry Regiment and retired from the army in 1998. Um, I then worked for the government for 10 years and then settled down to writing military history. I helped with the regimental history and then um, did some articles, but this is my first solo book, so it's quite exciting. Um, My interest in the Great War really start with visiting battlefields where my regiment and family ancestors had fought, um, so Eat, Somme, as well as Gallipoli. But when the centenary started in 2014, I was very aware I needed a much better understanding of the whole sweep of the Great War. And I turned to Gary Sheffield's biography of Haig, the chief. And that led me to studying 1914 more and a book on the leadership in the British Expeditionary Force in that year called Stemming the Tide, an excellent book. It was a chapter by an American um, um, military historian, Michael Le Cicero, on a certain Brigadier General Bulfin of my old regiment. What struck me um, was his outstanding leadership and fighting spirit at First Deep. And in a way, it was a light bulb moment for me. I decided that this man, largely forgotten in Britain and Ireland, his place of birth, deserved a biography. Can you tell us something about Bulfin's early life and career before the Great War? Edward Bulfin was um, born in Dublin in 1862. His father was a, a well-established established merchant and in fact became Lord Mayor in 1871 but died in office and poor young Edward was only eight. He was sent off to Stonyhurst in Lancashire, a Jesuit public school, and he started to read a degree at Trinity College Dublin after that but never finished and decided to join the army through the backdoor route which many people did then, of the militia. He then joined the Greenhards in 1884. The battalion was then in the Courage, just outside Dublin. And after service in Ireland and England, he went to India in 1890. And there he won his first campaign medal against the Kachin Hill Tribes in Burma. In 1898, he was back in England and was given a job of garrison adjutant in Dover. And there he came to the notice of an interesting Irishman called Sir William Butler, who was also uh, married to Lady Butler, the famous Victorian war artist. And Butler plucked him out of obscurity, really, and asked him to come to South Africa with him, where he'd been sent as commander-in-chief as a staff officer, and that was in the run-up to the Boer War. And when the war started in 1899... Bulfin was made brigade major of an infantry brigade and took part in all the battles to relieve Kimberley, playing an important role at um, Modder River. He finished the war as commander of a mountain infantry squadron, um, infantry column, 
where he got a lot of sort of cavalry experience as well. Regimental and staff appointments followed until 1913 when he was promoted Brigadier General. And by summer 1914, he was in Aldershot under Douglas Haig, given command of an elite regular brigade, the 2nd Infantry Brigade, part of the British Expeditionary Force. So war comes, uh, obviously in August 1914. What, what does Bolfin do then? He took part with the BEF in the retreat from Mons, and I was able to follow that closely because he did produce a, a, a war diary. And what did come out of it was his enormous concern for his soldiers' welfare through that very terrifying period. Now, this was a time, actually, when many commanders cracked under pressure, and Haig noticed him as a calm leader with a great fighting spirit. Um, Bolfin led his brigade through the Battle of Amman and Ain in September when trench warfare really started. But it was at first deep that Haig really um, saw his value and used him as a firefighter to save several desperate situations when the German masses almost overrung the BEF. He was promoted in the field to, to Major General, but on the 1st of November, he was seriously wounded in the head by a shell and was evacuated back to England. And that evening, Haig wrote in his diary, Wolfen reported wounded, a great loss to me, as he was a tower of strength at all times. And that's why hit on the um, title for the book. Not really fully recovered, he then was given command of 28th Division um, in 1915. And so the story goes on. So tell us about his command of the 28th Division during 1915 and his, his time on the Western Front, especially around the salient. The 28th Division was one of the last regular divisions. Its troops were hastily called back from India and Egypt, and they had no time to train or acclimatise. And Bolfin was given command of this just before Christmas, at the end of 1914. In effect, it was division in name, but not in being. And it was rushed to the Reap Salient in January 1915 during a dreadful winter, cold, rain, mud. And they had a calamitous start. They lost a trench. They had a high sickness rate. The brigades were pulled out of the line, in fact, for training. And indeed, Bolton was struggling. He was not well physically, and he was also on an immense learning curve, as many generals were then um, struggling with the, um, all of the challenges of fighting in the salient. But when the Germans launched the gas attack at Ypres on the 22nd of April. His division was thrown in to plug the gaps and hold the front line. And indeed, Bolton seemed to be back on his stride again. Now the battle has started. Nevertheless, the division was at the apex of the German attacks. So they took terrible casualties, some 15,500 in just over a month. But by the end of May, both sides were really exhausted. Come September, the Battle of Luce has started to the south. It's often called the Unwanted Battle. Many people will know this is when the new army divisions are thrown hastily into battle. 28th Division, which was just coming out for a rest up in the north, was called up as reinforcements, and Bolfin came under command of General Hubert Goff. Now, he was an Anglo-Irishman, and they did not get on. Goff was a cavalryman and a thruster, and he threw 28th Division into battle carelessly. Um, they were given the task to retake the Hohenzollern Redoubt. It was a German strong point in the north of the line, and each brigade struggled. Um, there was no shortage of courage. They really were given an impossible task. Poor grenades, um, very difficult to fight the Germans in these close trenches. And eventually, Bolfin stood up to Goff and refused another futile attack. And Goff decided Bolfin had to go. 
Um, Douglas Haig, realising Wilfin's head wound was still troubling him, then sent him home for arrest. So 1915 really was the nadir of his career, and Bulfin called it a nightmare. So we move on to 1916. Now, Bulfin takes a completely different challenge and is appointed to command the 60th Division, which was the Territorial Division of London um, Infantry Battalions and other units. Can you tell us about his time there and how he found dealing with territorials? This division, um, as you've intimated, was drawn from London and they would gain great fame in Palestine. But for Bulfin, commanding a territorial division after a regular one, and in particular at a time when his contemporaries were gaining promotion, it really would have been a backward step. But in many ways, it was a fortuitous appointment. It gave him time to recover and, importantly, to train this new division and inculcate an esprit de corps, something he couldn't do with the 28th Division. He had commanded volunteers before in South Africa, and also he commanded the Essex Brigade in 1913. He was certainly impressed by his Londoners, and he called them above my expectations. And he really enjoyed training them and um, um, gave a lot of attention and effort to training them before they went to France. Interestingly, in the spring of 1916, there was the Easter Rising, and that reminded Bolton forcibly of his Irish roots. Indeed, one of his brigades was sent over to County Cork for a short period to um, um, try and, and regain um, order. Next thing was Vimy Ridge, and in June, 60th Division went into action for the first time. And they were stationed under Vimy Ridge, holding a fairly stretch sector of line because so many troops were in the south fighting the Battle of the Somme. They built a, a solid reputation here, mostly in trench raids, and were hoping to go and emulate the deeds of their 47th Division, the London 47th Division in the, in, in the Somme. But for some reason, they were sent to Salonika, a real military backwater, fighting the Bulgarians. And this could easily have sunk Bulfin into obscurity. But orders came in June 1917 to embark for Egypt. Now, this was a decision that had profound consequences for Bulfin's career. He was now to serve again under Allenby, his old boss from Second Ypres. Now, when he gets to Palestine, he's promoted to command the uh, 21st Corps. Why was he promoted and how effective do you think he was as a a Corps commander? By the time Allenby had arrived in Egypt in summer 1917, um, the Egyptian expeditionary force had advanced from Suez Canal and earlier had tried to break Turkish line at Gaza twice and both unsuccessfully. Now Allenby called for reinforcements and reorganised his enlarged force into three corps, um, two infantry and one cavalry. Now, he knew Bulfin from the Western Front and admired his fighting spirit. He called him a staunch leader. So he promoted him to command this new 20, uh, 21st Corps. And indeed, Bulfin fulfilled Alamba's confidence. At the Third Gaza in October, Bulfin broke the Turkish line and the Corps led the way in capturing Jerusalem. On the 19th of September 1918, a hundred years ago, Annaby launched his daring masterstroke at the Battle of Megiddo, the biblical site of Armageddon in the Bible. It's in North Israel, um, as it is now. Now, this was an early example of Blitzkrieg with a cavalry light, um, lightning cavalry attack and the use of air power. But it first required the Turkish defences to be breached for the cavalry to gallop through. And Annaby knew his man and gave Bulfin the key role of being the battering ram to break the Turkish line, which Bulfin's corps did superbly. So Bulfin enjoyed serving under Allenby, and Allenby trusted him and allowed him to flourish. And I think Megiddo was the zenith of Bulfin's career. He and the British Army had come an enormously long way from the low point of 1915. And it's also interesting that whilst 
British public concentrate on 100 days on the Western Front. One of the greatest cavalry battles in history was taking place in the Middle East, and Wilfin was at the, the forefront of this. Um, I think you you make a very, very valid point. I mean, obviously, the 100 days is important to my grandfather served in the 100 days and was wounded in the 100 days. But it's you know important to remember that there was uh, it was a world war and there was battles and, and conflict going on in other fronts. We come to the end of the war. What happens to Bullfin after the war? Well, when the armistice was signed, not only in Europe, but also with the Ottoman Empire, many troops remained in the Middle East to cover the dismantlement of that empire. And Bullfin was left um, to command a large area, still under still commanding 21st Corps in Syria and, and, and uh, NATO. And in Egypt, there was quite an independence moving started, starting which led to a general uprising in spring of 1919. Allenby had been sent back to um, Paris for a peace conference and Bullfin was put in command. And he was sent down to, well, he, he took himself down to Cairo when he realized things were getting serious and restored order, which he did with his usual determination and he was pretty ruthless in doing it. And then the next year in 1920, back in England now, he refused Winston Churchill's order to command the police forces in Ireland. There was an, an escalating campaign of violence against the British called the War of Independence. And Bolton, as an Irishman, was not prepared to order police to fire on his countrymen. Well, in many ways, that was the end of his operational soldiering. But he had one last posting to Iraq and India in the early 1920s to do an unglamorous job of decommissioning surplus stores. But I think he got up to more than that because he got to know Gertrude Bellwell, who had many relations in the Green Hards. And then he came back to England to retire, promoted to full general, and devoted the rest of his life really to his, his beloved regiment. And he died in August 1939, two weeks before the start of the Second World War, aged 76. Now, we're coming to reflect on him as an as a individual and commander. My first question is, what was his character and personality like, and how did that shape his command style? He lost his father and elder brother at an early age, and I think that made him resilient and determined. He was typical in many ways of a Victorian public schoolboy. He, he was taught muscular Christian faith and a strong belief in empire. Not fashionable these days, but there we are. And he had a high sense of duty and always put um, others before himself. Um, he had obvious physical as well as moral courage and was always ready to speak his mind to authority. He was not someone to be, to, to be ordered around. He was stubborn. I think it's sometimes verging on irascibility at times. But he did have a great sense of fun, and he liked to party, and in his youth was always keen on amateur dramatics. But he was a private man, and he abhorred General's memoirs. Um, as a commander, he had a natural fighting spirit. He was tenacious. He had great care for his men. I think being a regimental officer for a long time, he never forgot to, um, the interest he had in, in, in his soldiers. He, he, By the end of the war, after all the learning he'd, he'd had through 1915, 1914 and 1915, he really was a, a pretty hardened and experienced infantry corps commander. He took great care in planning battles, great administrative care. He was tenacious, he was determined, and I, I think Allenby certainly recognised his um, characters, his character very well and appreciated him and said at the end that he could never, couldn't think of someone better to have on his side and, and least would like to have as an opponent. Now, you as a professional soldier have served, obviously, with a number of a wide range of commanders. How would you rate Bolfin, uh, I suppose, from your professional perspective? I think he's an interesting person in that it's often has happened in the study of the First World War to concentrate on senior figures such as Douglas Haig and Phil Marshall Robertson and others. 
and also to look at the private soldiers' experience on the front line. And often the middle-ranking commanders, brigade commanders up to corps commanders, are forgotten. And I think someone like Bullfin, who really reflected the trajectory of the learning curve of the First World War for these generals who had fought colonial wars and then been involved against the Boers, but this was the first industrial, major industrial war they'd been involved. And they were having to learn incredibly fast whilst the army was expanding astronomically. And I think Bullfin is an interesting person to study because he didn't have a lot of the advantages that other generals had of being Sandhurst or Staff College. He hadn't commanded his regiment. And he got to where he was by sheer merit. And remember, being at that time, Catholics were not trusted very well, and particularly Irish Catholics. And it shows that he was a devoted servant of empire, that he got to where he is. So I think he's an interesting man, and he's a certain certainly needs a biography. He's been largely forgotten in Ireland as well, so I hope the Irish will take an interest in him. I'm sure they will. I suppose the, the other really interesting thing you pointed out was that actually several of his relatives were involved actively in the Easter Rising. Did these, the, these um, family connections actually affect his career in any way? It's an interesting question because I assumed that they, they would hold him back. But interestingly enough, and I've looked at newspapers uh, and, and diaries of the period, Hubert Goff, for example, doesn't mention anything about his Catholicism. And I think the establishment must have known of his links and his family links to republicanism and nationalism. But I think he proved himself by his loyalty and the fact that he was a very straightforward soldier, that he could be trusted. And Haig trusted him immensely. And Haig often didn't trust Catholics, um, Brigadier General McDonough, who was, um, was his chief of intelligence for a while. Um, he, he often um, made rude remarks about him and felt that because he was a Catholic, he, he, um, his sources were tainted. So um, Bullfin rose above all that, and, and I, he must have been a remarkable person. And he never lost his Irishness. He, um, he, 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 he certainly was proud of being Irish and went back to Ireland frequently. And finally, John, where is your book available from? Well, it came out at the beginning of September, and it's available in all, hopefully, in, in most bookshops. Um, if, uh, and it's certainly on, on websites um, through Pen & Sword is the publisher, and I, I know it's, it can be widely obtained. John, thank you very much for your time. Delighted. Much enjoyed it. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>